welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. Welcome back to episode 116 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. And on this rare occasion today, we got all three of us behind the mics here. Myself in Oak Bank, Tristan's coming in from the balmy Lockport area. And got text messages rolling in. And Shelly's coming in from, looks like he's over in Brandon. Back in Brandon. How's it feel, man? It's been a while since you've been home been a month yeah it was uh it was a good little good little jaunt out there up there i guess pretty good happy to be home work's done and what's what's the plans for the home time here um not too much i'm just gonna this weekend was pretty much a write-off and then next weekend don't have much planned and then uh gonna be going on back up north for a little fishing trip so just kind of planning and get stuff ready for it i think right on right on and tristan you were you were out on the ice today how'd you guys make out yeah went out on the big windy there and it was big windy was not as windy as advertised so that was one of the rare occasions the weather was balmy i remembered sunscreen this time so that was a a real pro tip uh i think we we caught about three or four fish plus uh tyler got a big pike oh nice uh yeah that that was kind of nice but uh yeah slower day but it was uh like a pristine day to be on that lake seeing the big pike was kind of cool too although he smashed uh, a rattle bait like deep into the throat Ooh. so it was a bit of a mess there trying to get that out with any semblance of care so it is what it is but yeah great day to be on the lake had a big uh big meal and then get to go it was nice to be out felt feeling a bit recharged would you guys have you guys had a meal out there would you guys cook up uh, I did very little cooking, just to be clear. Uh, Cortland was running, uh, Cortland Susco was running the, we we worked with her with Kidfish Share, and she was running that deep fryer. She had some fish on the go and some French fries. Yeah, it was, it was a good little meal. Nice. That sounds pretty, pretty decent, man. And uh, you got any plans for the last two weekends of ice fishing coming up here? Um, things are getting pretty warm. It looks like all the lakes are pretty slushy. I was driving over over the river today, the old Lockport Bridge, and there's a few truck trails out there that look pretty slushed up. What uh, would you see on the lake today for the – give us the slush report. Yeah, slush, not terrible, but definitely some areas where there's going to be some some water and slush. You got to be mindful for, and you got to be kind of prepared to encounter it. It's just a matter of time sometimes, especially if you're on – like an uncharted trail. So you just got to kind of expect it. There was not a ton of people out today. I was actually surprised by the lack of people. Normally when we're on that lake in March, when you can access it with trucks, that that mouth of the river is just absolutely flooded with trucks this time of year. So we did not see that this time. So I'm guessing the the deep snow and the, the slush factor has something to do with that. Yeah, no kidding. I, uh, I heard that Prudence Creek is getting getting pretty banged up right now. Um, 
it sounds like uh I, don't, I guess just due to the the warmer weather here and in all the other factors uh, the height has become like a pretty high traffic area for access wise and you could almost drive right to the lake pretty much which leaves uh a lot of guys you know easy access short travel time on a bike or quad or uh snow machine or whatever you're traveling out there so yeah we didn't we didn't go down prudence though we went up the east channel but from our understanding talking to people on the on the lake that all kind of angles are getting pretty mucked up right now so it just careful going no matter which kind of direction you're taking nice nice and did you have any wool love on out there today i did have my wool love <laughs> on and i i did get down to just the the wool love at some point there because it was it was a uh, pretty balmy out like i said earlier so the the wool love was keeping me dry and cool to some extent on the ice so it was it was good to have it on. I had the socks, the the underlayer, and uh, yeah, and I also had it on the the day before too when I met up with you there at the ice fishing event in at Fort White. So, they, no wool love for Finn yet, though. You know that's the one thing they might have to consider. There is a little wool love toddler toddler size. Yeah, no kidding. I was uh, I was running some wool love on the ice there yesterday at the Fort White ice fishing event with the uh, Manitoba Wildlife Federation. And uh, it was keeping me nice and comfy all day, man. It was a little bit cooler in the morning and I dressed light because I knew I was gonna be punching holes and setting up tents and on the move all day. And uh, by the time that sunshine came out, man, and taking care of some of that seasonal depression with that nice glowing warm heat, um, I was comfy all day. Yeah, definitely helps. Definitely helps. Shell, you want to inform the good folks here where we can find some wool love? Yeah, sure. You can go to, uh, on the old interweb, you can go to wool.love, um, and you can check out their, all their stuff on there. And they also got that sister co- company called Northwall, so you can find them on there. Um, if you go on, on their website and you want to order some stuff, you can use our promo code PANORAMIC10 at checkout. That works just on the on their website. So if you do order it through Amazon or whatever, it doesn't work there. So check their website out. They've got a bunch of stuff. And check out their North Wall um, line, which is kind of a, a step above base layer. It's uh, kind of like a mid-layer garment. So check all that stuff out. That's wall.love. Nice. So uh, while we are at the, the ice fishing event there on Saturday, um, the DU boys brought out, I think, five Jiffy Augers. They had a bunch of the uh, Jiffy Model 56s out there. And they're a, a nice little battery-operated light unit with a, a steel flight on it. And uh, I think they had about five of them. And those things were punching holes all day. I think they – I bet you they punched over 100 holes. And they're a pretty sweet little unit, man. I, I, I took uh, one for a spin for a couple holes, and it was pretty nice to use. And uh, for those of you that know, don't know, we've also been running the Rogue this winter too. And Jiffy's also coming out with next year some exciting new stuff that we can't tell you about right now. But uh, keep your eyes peeled. Um, if you want to get into some some Jiffy stuff, they have a whole slew of equipment and gear that you could get into. Head over to JiffyOnIce.com and place your order today. And what else we got on the on the burner, you guys? Well, I got one for you guys. There's a question that's going around the internet. 
that I thought I'd ask you guys. Is it, uh, how do you get your Instagram account hacked? 101? <laughs> yeah. Twice <laughs> in 10 minutes. Yeah. It's awesome. Which is another freaking story for another day, but yeah, that is, guy it door- is-, is it doors or wheels? Yeah. Have you heard that question yeah, a couple yeah. times? Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think there's more doors or more wheels in, in the world? I'm definitely on the door side and let me tell you why. Because if you're thinking about automobiles, they each got four and four, lots of them. So that's a wash. What about a steering wheel? Does that count? Sure. It's a wheel. Okay. 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 Maybe that's the X factor then. But houses have doors. Get somebody. So what about what about semis that have two doors but have 18 wheels? And there's like millions of semis. Yeah. But there's, I bet you there's more than a million houses. So I'm, I'm oh, still yeah. going doors. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Chase, what do you think? think- Sorry, but I'm just my my last thing is the other. This was like probably a year ago, and my dad and I were having a beer. It was in the summertime, and he was like, just randomly, he's like, "You know how many freaking tires I got to put air in and replace tires on the ranch?" And I was like, "I have no idea." And he was like, "I can't remember the numbers between like twenty and thirty because he's got like the tiller and the lawnmower and the tractor and the truck and you know what I mean, like yeah." And so that it always sticks with me. It's like his little ranch, and he's got twenty some plus wheels. He's got to put air in, right? But. Never have to put air in a door. That's right. <laughs> Chase, what do you think? I, I'm going doors, man. When I think like apartment complexes or like some of those high rises downtown, there's a lot of freaking doors in there. Yeah. Well, I'll just think about how many wheels are in a watch. Does that Jeez. count? Those, well, those are not? gears. Those aren't wheels. Well, they're still like wheels. No, they're not. What, what about in a pulley system? Are those wheels? Well, they're pulley wheels. So what is so what do you say doors? It's got to be like a regular man door. Like do cupboard doors cupboard doors count? Because if cupboard doors count, then I think there'd be way more doors. Wait, we could talk about this for two hours here. Yeah. Well, sorry for bringing it up. If anyone <laughs> has wheels, if anyone has a definitive answer, you let us know. <laughs> so, someone will figure it out. Yeah, there's got to be an equation. Here's a question for you. How many doors are on the Stillwater store over in Verdon, Manitoba? If you're looking to go and count some doors at a fishing spot, like a fishing store, I would check out Stillwater Adventures in Verdon. If you go down to 269 King Edward Street East in Verdon, you can check out that store and count all their doors. But you know what? I bet you there's probably more wheels in there because they got a lot of cool equipment in there when, uh, you know, ice shacks and sleighs and anything you want. We're talking about the Jiffy Auger. We're talking about um, picking one of them up on the website but you can also check out stillwater adventures so check them out they're on they're also online stillwateradventures.ca and they got an e-store so check that out because it's one cool thing about supporting local stores is if you're looking for something check out all these little e-commerce stores before you hit the big box store i'm sure they appreciate it so that's stillwater adventures in burden right on right on so this episode, I don't think I even introduced our guest yet, but we got uh, Philip Rowley, who is a very well known for stillwater fly fishing. Um, I think his his uh, website is stillwaterfishing.com, so don't get those two mixed up, stillwater adventures, stillwater fishing. And uh, we had him on today to talk uh, stillwater fly fishing. He's a, he's a fly fishing educator. He's a guide, and he, you know, events his own flies. You eventually get in the fly fishing game long enough, you, you become one of just a, a a pure guru. And a, Phil's just a great guy, and I had we had a blast chatting with him, and uh, we hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did.
And joining us today on the podcast, I'm, I'm kind of excited about this because uh, of his specialty, but we have uh, Phil Rowley joining us today. Phil, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. It's good to be here. Thanks for uh, asking me to join you. Why don't you let the the good folks that are listening in here, uh, let them know where you're coming from today. Where you're I'm in coming from. to you from my home in Sherwood Park, which is about... I don't know, 10 minutes, five minutes, uh, just the east side of the North Saskatchewan River from Edmonton. Right on, right on. And uh, I don't know about you, but right now we're we're just kind of breaking into spring. We just got a little bit of a melt happening after mm-hmm. a uh, record like cold and snowfall winter for us in, the, in a few over the past few years for sure. How's, how's things shaping up your way? Yeah, we're the same. We've been... Uh, for your viewers that understand centigrade, we've been about close to 10 degrees for the last two or three days. So for American view listeners, that'll be, what do we do, double it and add 30, so about 50 Fahrenheit. Um, we've had a, probably not as much snow as you, had a real up and down. We've had some good snowfalls. We had a probably eight, nine inches uh, in early March. And then, um, but we also had some freezing rain which this, excuse me, this year, which they often predict, but never happens, but it happens. So that turned our streets into skating rinks and then covered with snow and then more freezing rain. And, and so it's, uh, we've, we've had, we've had winter and we've had some searing cold weather, um, as well. Um, although you guys in Manitoba seem to always be the, 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 pardon the, the, uh, oxymoron, the hot spot for cold. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out why my parents stayed here, but uh, <laughs> well, well, it was funny. Well, I had uh, Brian Chan at once um, uh, for a visit, and, and he came out in the winter. And uh, we were the second coldest place on the planet, uh, next to Siberia. And uh, you know, I watched geez. him run from the terminal of my car, and I didn't think he was going to make it. I thought he was going <laughs> to freeze mid-step. So that was a little eye-opening when your nose hairs freeze instantaneously. That's sort of the where I draw the line of, you know, comfortable cold, you know, minus 10 or whatever with light winds to that's just cold when it's minus 30 plus with the uh, wind chill into the 40s or even the low 50s. So, yeah, that's never yeah. any fun. I, I got a yeah. quick question here and I'm, I'm sure. curious about what your answer is going to be. Um, as far as like we're talking snowfall and winter weather, is there any like what's your ideal conditions for going into uh, like spring fishing for either river fishing or for uh, lake fishing, like does it matter? Does snowfall matter much in that sense to you? Uh, in in what in what regards? Like uh, like just if, whether. It... Sorry to cut you off, yeah. but if you had lots yeah. of snowfall compared to like a, a a small amount of snowfall, is there a year where you go through a winter and you're like, oh man, it's going to be a great spring on the river or a great sp- spring on the lake because X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Um. Usually, um. It's. You kind of want just average. Um, I like it because at least it's somewhat predictable. If you get too, you know, I do a lot of lake fishing. That's sort of my speciality. So if you get a lot of snowfall on top of the ice, that stops plant growth, photosynthesis, and then plants start to die. They consume oxygen, and you can end up with a lot of winter kill situations where there's so much decomposition, which one of the byproducts of decomposition is oxygen consumption, and it just consumes all the available oxygen in the lake. And of course, fish being the largest oxygen consumers, they pay the ultimate price. So, um, you know, if you have a heavy snowmelt year on a river, of course, your runoffs are going to probably be pretty severe. There's going to be the risk of flooding sometimes. So mm-hmm. it's nice always to have that average uh, rather than those peaks and valleys um, yeah. as well. Because I was talking to a friend of mine who was 
they've had little snow, but obviously been cold and ice. And uh, the plants have continued to grow, and that's good, but it's really stimulated uh, algae growth, which usually algae is a plant, and it sort of subsides, you know, when it's not getting the, the uh, sunlight because mm-hmm. of the snow melt, the snow on top of the ice. But it's just that ice is just magnifying the effects of the snow. And now you've got algal blooms <laughs> in, in the, the middle of winter on some of these clear lakes. So it's, it's always nice, to, I think, just to have the average. We're all sort of used to that. The peaks and valleys, Mother Nature always... You never know how she's going to react to those. Yeah, no kidding. That's amazing. I never, I've yeah. never even realized that was possible to have uh, algae bloom in the winter. Yeah. That's a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we get rolling to the meat and potatoes here, um, I'm kind of going to blindside you with this one, but we got uh, five burning questions that we usually roll <laughs> on our guests here. Just uh, a little get to know you session. So um, I got a little gear, a little say cooking and uh a little um kind of lifestyle stuff to toss at you here but first question what is uh do you have a favorite rod that you use yeah i do i uh you know again being a still water fanatic my favorite rod is the mystic m series uh, mystic not too well known uh though getting more and more well known but uh originally a company that was based in michigan the m series was originally designed for Great Lakes Steelhead and the nymphing there, which I've had the good fortune to do a few times. Um, but it's also an outstanding um, still water stick too. Um, I use the six weight, it's 10 foot, three inches long. We love long, you know, dedicated still water fishermen um, tend to like longer fly rods for a variety of reasons. Um, it's just a, it's reasonably priced. Um, it's got a good lifetime guarantee, great company. I've worked with them for years and, and really like their product. Nice. Let's unpack yeah. that a little bit. Let's, uh, sure. so when we're talking like still water rod compared to uh river rod, what's, what's going to be some differences that you're looking for there and why? Well, you're generally looking, you know, from a rod weight four to seven, like a, a four weight would be good for small fish, light winds. Um, seven weights would be obviously bigger fish, bigger wind. And I tend to use seven weights more when I lock style, where you're fishing from a drifting boat that's controlled by a big underwater parachute called a drogue. You do you just tend to do more repetitive casting, and um, just the seven weight let the tool do the job. You know, mm-hmm. younger me would have just worked harder, but as I got older and wiser, I, I like to think <laughs> let the tool do the job. But a six weight gives you a good balance. That's my favorite um, size. It gives you a good uh, you know balance of, of sport and enjoyment when you catch a fish yet has, you know, the, the backbone and the, um, to, to deal with wind and things like that. Um, we like the long rods and lakes for a number of reasons. Um, you know, if you fish in indicators and you fish an indicator that can't, that doesn't move once you fix it in position, you simply get to fish a greater depth before the indicator jams up at the rod tip and you can't land the fish. We, we truthfully use a lot of what we call quick release indicators that release when, um, you know, the, the leader comes under tension the way they work. Um, we like them for steering and controlling fish. So, you know, if you're fishing from an anchored position, fishing to have this love for your anchor ropes. So, mm-hmm. uh, at least with a long rod, you can just extend your arm and just steer them right around the boat or your pontoon boat or your float tube until they get dizzy, <laughs> tired, <laughs> stop doing it. Um, great for roll casting, which is my preferred presentation cast when I'm fishing indicators because it's a tangle prone system. So the great for roll casting, you think about a spay rod for rivers and streams, yeah. um, I don't think they've got micro spay out yet. You know, I got trout spay and regular spay and Scandi and 
all the other types. So I don't think they got micro spade yet where they're using seven foot rods. So anyway, you see a longer <laughs> rod for better roll casting. Um, we mend. Um, so, um, you know, when we're using floating lines, we use the wind to assist our presentation. So we need to mend and control that that swing and drift that the wind uh, induces. Um, we use a technique called the hang a lot in lakes. We're right at the end of the retrieve rather than just picking up and casting again. We will pause the retrieve and hang the flies literally right at the boat because fish love to follow. And uh, when you raise that rod up and then stop it, that raise changes fly speed and direction. And a lot of times that'll trigger a following fish into a taking fish because it thinks the fly is escaping. And uh, so with a longer rod, <clears throat> you can hang, you get a better hang because you can hang more, you know, multiple flies, um, those kind of things. Um, you tend to throw, you, it allows you to throw a little more open loop which is advantageous when casting long leader systems like in still waters, you know, we're casting mm -hmm. 15 to 25 foot leaders at times. Holy smokes. Uh, we're fishing indicator setups, those kind of things, um, which are tangle prone. So a little more open loop it robs you of a little bit of distance, um, but um, less tangles. And when you're indicator fishing, you shouldn't be making long casts anyway. So. Yeah. Interesting. I wow. I think that's about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you sold it pretty good to me there. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So on. Uh, I can write you up for one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put me on the list. Checks in the mail. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> All major credit cards are accepted. Yeah. Um. Now you you've got quite the uh the resume for you know fishing and fishing internationally and. And uh, you obviously have a huge reach, but is, is there one place that you want to go fish that you haven't yet? Funny, my wife and I were talking the other day about places we'd like to visit. And of course, my wife likes to fish, but she also likes to be a tourist too. Um, I'd love to go to New Zealand. Um, that was, I emigrated from England when I was seven. And my father told me it was Canada or New Zealand were the two places. So it'd be kind of fun to go there. I'd love to go back to England too. And they've got a rich stillwater culture there. There's a lot of famous fisheries. I'd like to go there and do that someday. Um, I'd like to do some exotic tropical stuff too. It's uh, be nice to stand in 85 degree weather and shorts mm -hmm. and cast yeah. a permit and, and bonefish and, and fish like that. So yeah, yeah, totally. That's cool. Um, now I know for the most part, you know, uh, fly fishermen are really glorified for their catch and release tactics. But um, if you had a favorite fish for the plate, what would it be? Walleye, <laughs> followed by northern pike. <laughs> nice, nice. Yes, yeah. preferably both mixed together in a little batter, uh, shore lunch style. Um, yeah, it's kind of like I like sushi too. Um, it's funny how when both of those meals are put before me, my stomach can expand ten times to get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. um, I remember when we we're. I, I used to do some some guiding for for like hunting guiding and up in Moose Camp, man. You get the, some of those fellas from the states up in camp, and you never seen people eat walleye as much as that. They just it's just like. But you can't beat a shore lunch. There's there's the whole the fish is so fresh and tender and, and tasty, and you're in that atmosphere. You know, you're sitting on the side of a lake somewhere or a river, and you're the only person potentially within a hundred square miles maybe oh, and yeah. that's that's it really puts everything into perspective it's pretty cool it was i remember one of the first shore lunches i had on a on a trip i was i do some filming with the new fly fisher so get to have shore lunch and they're always worried with a catch and release fly fisher they're worried we're going to be appalled if we kill a fish and we're, 
I'm okay with it. Um, you know, I don't kill trout and salmon for the most part because I'm not particularly fond of the taste of them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, by about 10 o'clock, 11, if we hadn't caught a pike, it was like, are we going to, I'm like, can we kill one soon? They'd <laughs> 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 look at me like, who's, what, what, who are you and what, where did you come from? Cause I yeah. turned into this you know this carnivore supreme carnivore yeah no kidding that's awesome <laughs> phil how how long is that rod you're catching the walleye on and which way does the reel turn that's what i'm curious about <laughs> i'm using a fly rod a lot of times uh, most of the time um and, and it's because when i moved from british columbia to alberta um i didn't have much there's only walleye in southeastern bc on the columbia river i think maybe a few other places but that's the ones i'm familiar with but of course, Alberta and the Prairie Provinces have lots of walleye, and I was just curious to get them on a fly rod. You know, it's tough to beat a jig and a minnow, uh, I freely admit, but, um, you know, I do quite well. I actually guide for them um, during the summer months um, when the trout are shallow, our local little trout lakes are you know, kind of shallow and they get too warm to fish. Um, you know, the trout gets kind of stressed because of the high water temperature and low oxygen that that creates. Um, so I go chase walleye on the fly and, and do at times quite well and really well um you know and, and they're a lot of fun so if i was out with you for the day and i i just flown in and i had one day to catch a walleye on a on a fly rod what would you be telling me to to throw here um usually i'm you can fish them uh you know I, the way i taught myself to fish walleye on the fly was i couldn't find any sort of local um advice um how people were catching them on the fly but i just started you know paying attention to how the conventional anglers are doing it so i just mimic their techniques with a fly rod so when they're slip bobbering that's a strike indicator and hanging a leech or a minnow pattern um if they're jigging in deeper water i fish a fast sinking type seven line and fish balanced flies vertically just off the bottom um if they're crankbaits and stripping I'm just using, um, you know, a clear intermediate line and clousers or some kind of streamer like that. And those three methods, usually one of those three will work. Um, you know, the challenge with walleye is they're such soft feeders in that they love to inhale. You know, for all those nasty teeth they've got, they don't use them in the same manner a pike does. So they, they all, to me, they play games. You They'll suck the fly in for, you know, one or two seconds max and realize it's not real and they're spitting it out. <laughs> and you've got to learn to recognize the take. So all of the years I've spent fishing coronamid patterns uh, and learning to recognize subtle takes um, had a se secondary benefit that all of a sudden I was a lot more in tune to recognizing those games while I like to play with it. Yeah. See, we, we, uh, we fish a lot of pickle rigs on the, on the red river here. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's any pickle rig patterns that you could tie or something <laughs> of that, that nature. Well, I fish, you know, when I first started, everybody's well, while I don't eat, won't eat flies. And I'm like, well, really? Why? What do they eat? Leeches and minnows. I said, well, we got that covered in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So the only thing is they don't taste like, uh, you know, when you, I've got a friend who's a fly fisher, but he loves to fish his walleye with a jig and a minnow. And it's, it's, that's tough to beat. You can't, you know, when the walleye puts a, a real thing in its mouth that's got taste and texture, it's like, it's not letting go of it. Right. Yeah. So, um, it's uh, a lot of fun. We've, I'm not sure we covered it on the, this podcast, but I've talked to a few people about fishing uh, walleye in BC mm -hmm. and even Alberta, and it's a much different culture than than it is in Manitoba or Saskatchewan. Is that fair to say? Uh, um, not a hundred percent sure, because my my only real expertise, you know, experience expertise. I don't know about that, but experience 
um, has been in Alberta. I'd love to come out and, and try some of the other um, walleyes. And, and I like the challenge. If somebody says to me, you can't do it, I'm like, oh, let, can I try at least? Mm-hmm. You know, they told me, oh, you know, one of the trips I did filming was, um, no, my wife and I were on a, a trip to a, a lodge and, uh, you know, it was late summer. We'd hope to get the lake trout coming in on the rocky shoals prior to spawn but they Mm -hmm. were it was a warm summer so they were still out deep but we were able to get them out of 60 70 feet of water just you know using fast sinking lines and figure we we got them figured out and they're they're just as aggressive as a pike in fact sometimes more so yeah it seems so they just all we were doing is we would pick our days we weren't anchoring because we were like they were 60 70 feet down and 200 feet of water that's a lot of anchor rope um so so what we would do is pick our days on a light wind and, you know, we were just drifting and our guide was able to sort of help control the boat with a little bit of uh, strategic uh, outboard motor at times. But all we would do is as we're drifting down, you know, downwind with the, with the breeze is I would cast downwind on a, on a, you know, 30, 45 degree angle with a really fast sinking tight seven, like a striped bass line or something that really gets down you know, cast as far as I comfortably can, have the rest of the line stripped off to the backing. And as soon as that fly landed, I would start stacking and just throwing line out and piling it one on top of each other so that line could sink um, free and just go down. And when that line got, you know, as it starts to come up, either as it got vertical or as it started to swing right opposite me and so it didn't go behind because if it got behind me i start pulling on it and it starts riding up so as soon as it got down we're just stripping with aggressive two foot pulls with a white streamer and holy man do they clock that thing yeah right and and we were the guy was quite surprised there was a group of americans in who were conventional fishing and and they were blown away that we got lake trout you know we didn't get anything big um but you know just to again i just you just think the problem through and and, and, and how can you do it? So I, and I think I did an, an episode with a new fly fisher at Scott Lake Lodge. And that's one of the ways we got it. We had a nice calm day and we could mark them on the sounder. They were there and we got them. And of course, fishing off drop-offs, like off an esker, um, you know, anchor, then we could anchor in six, eight feet of water. And we're fishing over into 20 or 30. And those Lakers are just cruising that the dark side water off the drop-off looking for minnows and anything else. And, you know, just, they're not selective. They're just killers. Um, so clousers, half and halves, deceivers, you know, just a, you know, something that remin, you know, approximates the size and color of the bait fish and is frankly easy to cast. So yeah, you can do it. Well, that's interesting. My brain's still trying to process half the information you just shared there, but from what, what I, what I understand in that whole segment there, Chase, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a very similar way that we would, we would fish Lake Trout with a tube jig, um, Mm -hmm out out this way and basically just going for that rise uh that rise hit well that's where i the the day i my wife and i sort of you know figured it out was we were the other boat that was out with us they were using a tube jig you know they're big rubber kind of look like a toy um yeah (laughs) but um you know they would just pitch it out and of course it's heavily weighted it plummeted down fast the drawback even though i'm using a line it sinks seven inches per second which in fly line terms is fast for uh compared to a you know a jig or tube jig like that it's nothing right so it just takes time to get down and you need to be you know almost stationary to allow the fly to get down if there's any kind of wind the boat's going to move too fast and it starts pulling on the line and then the line rides up and you don't get the depth that you're hoping for so you got to pick your days or, or pick your spots you know get behind an island 
you know, and you work with the guide and, and, and they'll, they'll help figure it out for you. Whoever you with. I got to ask you this though, sure. Phil, like, cause I've, I've fly casted sinking line out of my boat before for Lake trout. And what do you do with all the line when you start stripping? That's what I haven't figured out yet. <laughs> yes. Cause sinking line, the finer it is, which is characteristic of a type seven line um, would uh, is, is tangle prone. So one of the reasons it gets tangle prone is because it gets dry. So it, it, and then it starts binding up. So what I often do when I'm doing this is I've got a collapsible gardening bucket, you know, the cloth type ones. Sometimes people use them as a hamper for clothing. I, I, my buddies would bug the hell out of me for having, I couldn't care less, but if I had little pink flowers all over it, I'd probably get ridden pretty hard. <laughs> but anyway, you put that in and then I would put about, uh, maybe half three quarters of an inch of water in the bottom. So I'm stripping the line into that basket and then that water sort of keeps it lubricated and apart and it doesn't get tangled up. But yeah, huh. if you're around your feet, another way, if you're, if you can't do that, you could wet a, um, a hand towel and just lay it on the floor of the boat and strip it onto that. And if you, the other issue is you tend to stand on fly line. I swear, if you look at it mm. microscopically, it's got little millipede feet. When you're not looking, <laughs> it's like tracking over underneath your feet. So sometimes I'll take my shoes off. You know, if it's a warm day, I'll go barefoot. That's often done in the tropics. And if it's a little too cold for that, then just stocking foot. So you can feel it when it gets underneath your foot, right? And, and get it off. So line management, you know, be careful of where you're putting your line, all that kind of stuff. Um, but once you make that cast and, you know, even sometimes you shoot it out, like I talked about and you stand on it, something happens, it gets a knot and you know, it does tangle up a little bit. So it lands there. You just undo it and then just stack the rest of it out there and get it out there working for you. So, yeah. Whew, man. First few minutes in here, I'm already way too excited about, uh, fly fishing up more fly fishing opportunities in Manitoba. <laughs> you have a lot yeah i know what i'm doing this spring already i got that figured out all right i'm pumped um so uh one of the things that that's on your on your list of uh expertise here is obviously uh fly tying um do you have a favorite fly that you like to tie and one that you would like to use as a favorite Ooh. well i'm probably known for coronamid fishing um, very popular out west and and also pretty deadly in in your province too. Um, there's a fly I created called the Chromi that I use, and probably after that would be a balanced leech of some sort. Nice. Right? Um, those flies, you know, particularly in the prairie provinces, leeches, minnows, coronamids, they're probably and water boatmen and back swimmers and some minnow patterns and a few blobs for when they're on zooplankton, but you know that, that those those do well for you you know especially when i spend a lot of time fishing the lakes you have in in southwest manitoba and the russell roblin area mm -hmm. yeah totally and uh last question for you of the five burning questions here if you ain't fly fishing what are you up to if it's not fly fishing uh, related yeah if it's not fly fishing related i'm probably sleeping um no <laughs> <laughs> um i'm a sports fan so i like hockey i'm a huge english soccer fan uh particularly of liverpool um so i'm every opportunity i get to watch them and follow them um i do that um 
God, I just fly fish all the time. That's all I eat, sleep, and drink, and, and talk about all the time. Drives my wife a little crazy sometimes. Other things because I'm not a house person. Yeah, I you know to fix something around the house is like a one month of investment of my wife just constantly working on me to do it because I just look at a house as a storage system for fishing gear. So. <laughs> I'm not one to go make nice furniture or just build something nice in the backyard you know i reluctantly mow the lawn i reluctantly you know clean up things and stuff i'd rather rather go fishing <laughs> yeah well i could only imagine what uh you know a lifetime of fly fishing what your what your fly tying room looks like with m- material and stuff it's a lot i've got more than some fly shops so um, <laughs> well i moved to edmonton i used to live in the greater vancouver area in british columbia for Move when I was seven, moved to Canada. We landed in Vancouver. We lived in Chilliwack, which is a small town about an hour and a half east of Vancouver. Then my dad got a job on Vancouver Island. So I grew up on there in the greater Victoria area. And then uh, after graduation, I moved to Vancouver. Big lights, big city, chase girls, all that stuff. <laughs> uh, too poor to move home. Um, so you got to <laughs> sort of eke out a life for yourself. Spent 23 years in the collision and auto insurance business. Not really a job. I was. I wanted to be a pilot, but the first recession in the 80s kind of tore apart the aviation industry, and it was really tough to get an entry-level job. So, um, And, uh, yeah, got introduced to fly fishing in my 20s. So I moved. I had an opportunity to get out of the industry I was in and get into fly fishing full-time, and that's what brought me to the Edmonton area. I worked for a company called Superfly that used to be a fly-tying materials um um just distributor um now they're just distributing fly fishing gear i think they've totally shut down their fly tying operation um so uh, that's what moved me out to to edmonton and i'm the edmonton area and i've been here ever since awesome what uh what kind of stuff were you chasing back when you first got into fly fishing in your 20s there trout uh bc's very trout dominated um you know so we chased a lot of trout we had some uh local rivers in the greater vancouver area they either had rainbow trout or we had coastal cutthroat like in the fraser river system mm-hmm. uh, we chased those a lot um in the interior of british columbia the kamloops area which is famous for its still water fishing do a lot of that basically from early april through until freeze up and depending sometimes late november uh late october early november even later sometimes and then of course we had a lot of uh, anadromous fish, so salmon coming back, all five species, which we chase on the fly, coho, uh, chum salmon, um, sockeye were a little harder to get on the fly. Pinks were a great fish to learn to fly fish on because they come in subtle schools at like 60,000. You know, my two <laughs> sons learned to fly cast, to fly fish for pinks because it's a fish of cast between three and eight pounds. Um, you know, they, they get the hang of things pretty quick and they catch a lot of fish, which keeps them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those, so, you know, in the greater Vancouver area, you had a full season and then there's even some lakes with bass in them. Right. Yeah. Um, so you had that opportunity as well. So there was lots to keep you busy, but from my perspective, the, the, the lake fishing just, I don't know, flipped a switch in my head. I really liked it. I, not a lot of people, well, NBC, a lot of people do it, but it was, you know, it was a, it's a different fishery than rivers and streams. The fish are a little bigger, arguably, in the more productive lakes. And it's just, it was easy to do, right? You, They were, you know, it was relatively inexpensive. I remember, you know, putting a float tube in the trunk of my car and the, a little battery cigarette lighter operated pump from Canadian Tire and driving up, pulling it out, pumping her up, jumping on the, in the water and, and going fishing. It was, it was uh, you know, easy to do. The anadromous stuff was seasonal. 
steelhead fishing. There was some local stuff, but the best steelhead fishing was in northern BC, which was a long drive, mm-hmm. driving by a lot of good lakes on the way. So <laughs> sometimes you never quite made it to your destination. Um, stuff like that. And the river, BC has some really good trout fishing in rivers, but southeast corner of the province around Fernie and, and through there. And, and some other, you know, rivers up in the, the Caribou and the Chilcotin area and, and the Chilco and places like that, but not as well known as you think about down in the States and the Blue Ribbon Trout Country, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, um, those kind of places. Yeah. I, I did a little trip out west a few years ago. We were, uh, it was in the spring and we um, I had planned to tote the, the fly rod, but it was a little, little early because uh, the runoff down the, uh, the rivers and the creeks was still too heavy to to really get out get on a trout but i tried nonetheless uh up in that chilliwack country and then carried on to the the island where uh, a friend of ours lives and um not that trip but a previous trip we did some some river fly fishing for uh salmon and that was one of the probably one of the best fly fishing experiences i've had yeah, they're, they're a lot of fun. Vancouver Island's got some great fishing because it's it's a it's you know pretty temperate climate, so you can fish year round pretty well. Um, you know, it does get a lot of rain at times, but um, it doesn't get the snow that you and I are now mm-hmm. seasoned veterans on. Um, but uh, you know, the Cowichan River is a wonderful fishery. It's got steelhead salmon, a really good resident population of trout as well, including some pretty decent brown trout fishing, cutthroat, rainbows. Um, you know, and it's got fly fishing only water to it. So it's, it's, I've fished it a number of times and, and really enjoyed that. And there's other great rivers up the island. There's some really good smallmouth bass fishing on Vancouver Island. Okay. Um, that's supposed to be there a lot. Some of the bass fisheries in BC have kind of just happened somehow overnight, <laughs> which is a concern in some waters because of the bass's ability to decimate juvenile trout and salmon, right? So, yeah. you know, the shallow water is prime rearing ground for juvenile trout and, and uh, certain species of salmon, and that's favorite bass hunting water too. So it's, it's probably not a good a good combination if you want to be a, a trout or a salmon someday. Yeah, no kidding. Phil, did you ever have a, did a switch flip in your head where you, you figured out you were a still water fisherman now, or did, uh, did you have that aha moment at any point? Um, I just, it was, I don't know if it was an aha moment, but you know, it was, you know, in the beginning, like all fly fishing at times, you're trying to master how to cast and, and how to deal with, with everything. And, and, um, and then once you sort of get somewhat of the hang of that, then you, you know, you focus more on the on the fishing aspect, but it was just so much still water opportunity in British Columbia. And it was, you know, there's decent fishing, the fish are, you know, productive lakes can be big. Um, there wasn't the crowding. You didn't have to deal with runoff. The bugs were bigger, you know, um, you know, we don't have to deal with, uh, insects such as trichos, which are ridiculously small mayfly that occurs on rivers and streams and things like that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were, it was, no runoff either, you know, those kind of things. So it was, you know, pretty well a fishery that was available to you all the time. And, and once you get into trying to figure it all out and every day is different, um, it, it just, I just came addicted to it. Right. It was no, um, you know, my, my first fish on the fly was actually on the Skagit river, uh, east of Vancouver, uh, on a dry fly of, of, of all things too, which is on rivers and streams can be pretty difficult to present if you're a beginner, uh, to get that drag free drift to get that accurate cast and i managed to 
fluke one out, I think, and it drifted, you know, drag free for probably 0.8 seconds, which was enough for a trout to eat it uh, before it started skating away on it or getting drowned or something. So, um, yeah, but it was just probably just over time. It just, you know, just I enjoyed doing it, I, especially the chronomid fishing because it's such detective work at times to, you know, figure out the, you know, the stage they're on, whether they're in the larval stage or the pupil stage. And, what processing the emergence and the size and the colors and all the little nuances if you know if you like problem solving if i always joke if you like doing jigsaws and things like that as a kid you probably like doing that kind of stuff with the fly fishing because that's what made it different from i conventional fished up until probably my early 20s um and you know i had a friend who was trying to get me i was playing hockey at the time and not anything professional just beer league hockey um and uh, he was trying to get me into fly fishing and I was always putting him off. And my wife and I, when we were just married, um, went to a lake on Vancouver Island um, and we were, you know, trolling around. Uh, my neighbor was fishing flies. He gave me some Doc Spratleys, which is a famous fly out in the West. I just basically drowned them uh, and <laughs> dragged them around. And then we were fishing little lures and things. I think uh, over the week I had one small rainbow trout. And the only reason I knew I caught it is I brought the line in to see what was going on. And he was so small, he didn't even trigger the, you know, the weight I had to get the fly down. <laughs> he didn't even, the poor thing was just being dragged around. Um, that was all I had to show. And then one night, a, a, an older gentleman, God, I almost thought he was the epiphany of Rod, Roderick Haig Brown. You know, he had a wicker creel and hip boots on, and he walked in the shore of the lake where it spilled out into the little qualicum. We were fishing a lake called Cameron Lake. And he waded out. There was trout rising. He fished for an hour. He caught more fish than I had seen in the entire week, kept a couple, and disappeared off into the gloom. And that was that was probably the aha moment for me is like, okay, there's something to this. I just spent a week, um, you know, just totally frustrated, didn't understand got went my friend took me out i had that great first you know he gave me some rudimentary casting lessons so i knew enough to be dangerous um and then caught my first fish on the fly and that was that was an aha moment too because i had never felt a fish fight like that before because there was nothing between you and the fish other than the you know the the leader and the line right so there was no no other weight nothing like that and just that just flipped the switch and i just became this sponge for everything fly fishing and then you discover you know you got to have an understanding of the food sources the entomology that fascinated me as well because it's a dog eat dog world down there so um, you know if most of us growing up as boys like dinosaurs i know girls like them too but my two sons like dinosaurs because they kill each other and the t-rex and the velociraptor were king so any <laughs> badass bug was was cool in my books too right so that's <laughs> sort of those aha moments that that came oh man we're telling t-rex and raptor raptor uh stories every night at bedtime right now in our yep. house <laughs> i had to my oldest son i had to read him a, a the dinosaur story and he always liked the one about dionychus which was i think that was in the second or third jurassic park movie that was the badass one that kind of beat up on t-rex for a while before t-rex figured him out a little bit and all that stuff yeah i had to read all that all the time and he always liked the rap the you know the ones that destroyed other dinosaurs you know and didn't want to eat nobody wants to hear about a plant eater right unless it's getting eaten by something <laughs> yeah. yeah um I, i'm kind of curious too uh it sounds like you got a little bit of experience in the in the dry fly world as well but 
um, I, I've heard the conversation kind of go both ways on this. How like um, dry fly fishing is like the the pinnacle of, of fly fishing, and and uh, the the streamer fishing all that is is kind of almost lower class. But I've heard it tossed the other way too. You know that still water and underwater fishing is is a lot more complicated than everybody thinks. As you kind of mentioned there, you know there's a lot more to it than. Uh, than just tossing something out there and hoping it bites. But what's your take on that? Um, I'm pretty liberal in that regards. I like all styles. I know I'll chuck a streamer. I love to Euro nymph on rivers. Um, we don't get to do on the productive lakes I fish. We don't get a lot of dry fly fishing. Even when I was out in Manitoba, the only time you get any sort of surface activity was, and I always joke when we, when we talk dry fly fishing in lakes, we got a pretty wide range of what qualifies. It's not always insects. So if they're, you know, you got you know, Patterson Lake or Tekarik when those lakes were in their prime and twin out in the Roblin uh, Russell area, when they were busting minnows in the shallows, you know, you could get them on top. You could strip a Chernobyl ant or throw some kind of buoyant pattern and make it strip it so it made a wake and they'd come up and eat it without hesitation. Um, in the fall and early spring, you'll get water boatmen and back swimmer migration flights, which give you some surface opportunity um you know but most part in lakes we just don't get the drive the, the traditional mayfly caddisfly um surface activity and even when they are eating them it's usually a better bet to fish subsurface they'll eat the nymphs and the pupa more because you know you a lot of times you're fishing not over two or a, a run of two or three feet deep you might be fishing over 10 or 12 feet and it's just a safer for the trout to be near the bottom and all the food they could ever need right in front of their nose. Why would they venture up through 12 feet of water to expose themselves and waste all that energy when sometimes they can just swim around with their mouth half open and get more, you know, it's like driving through a locust storm on a motorbike, right? You're going to yeah, eat yeah. them with you want to and not, yeah. right? So we don't get it. So when I do, I, I do like to get, to get uh, trout on top on lakes because it's a lot of fun, right? Especially, you know, big caddis. Um, my wife and I were down in Wyoming, and we were fishing Monster Lake, which was on a private ranch. Kanye West bought it. Now it's up for sale. If you guys got 14 million bucks, you can probably get it. Let's go um, but it, it was a beautiful fishery with browns and cutthroat and tigers and brookies and rainbows. I think I covered them all in there. And we ran smack dab into a caddis hatch, like big traveler sedges that were like size eights. Um, and they were just skating all over the surface. And we had just a great three days fishing dries on top. Oh, you know, just explosive rises, you know, because it's a big bug. They'll come up and, and expend some energy and they get excited about it all. And it's, it's a lot. It was a lot of fun. That's awesome. So yeah. I guess what I what I gathered from that answer was that really if somebody is like a, a dry fly purist, um, you know, maybe they're not the best fly fisherman or fly fisherwoman. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But, you know, with each presentation technique. There are, you do, you, you need unique skills, right? Like to be a dry fly fisherman, you need to be able to present your fly delicately. Um, you need to be accurate with your casts. You know, you need to be able to read the rise form to interpret whether they're taking the adult, the emerger, those kind of things. When you're fishing subsurface like coronamids, you've got to figure out the depth they're on, what size, what mm -hmm. color, you know, do they want them static? Do they want them moving? You know, with when you're fishing streamers, um, you know, again, what do they want them fast, slow? They want them erratic. They want white ones. They want brown ones. Um, you know, each each method, each discipline we fish and fly fishing and fishing in general 
has its own unique set of criteria that you've got to sort of get your your skill set wrapped around to, to be successful. So I think sometimes people shun other methods because maybe they didn't have the success, so it's not worth it, right? But yeah. I like I that challenges me. Um, you know, when I'm not having success and others are, it's like, well, you know, I don't think there's no magic fairy up there or anointing lucky people every day. Everything happens for a reason, and that's the fun when you. You know, especially when you're having a tough day, I find I learn more on those days when I really got to use my head and think this through and what's going on, um, because sometimes it's really subtle things that you make that one little change that seems so insignificant, and all of a sudden, oh my God, it's on, right? Because humans are very good at the obvious stuff, mm-hmm. right? You know, what size, what, you know, where are you, those kind of the obvious questions, but a lot of times it's subtle little little things that, uh, and that comes with experience, just you know, not being afraid to try something, you know, waste half an hour and try it. You're not catching fish anyway. So we'll give it a shot, huh. right? Yeah. You have to lose. Okay. Uh, Phil, you're going to have to bear with me on this one here, sure. but Chase, the, the more Phil talks, the more ironic the, the story of the duck mountain fishing trip is I, I find. Um, so we, Chase and I had just taken our partners up camping in the ducks for their first camping excursion with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, it rained pretty much all weekend. And we were catching virtually no fish. I would say no fish, eh, Chase, all weekend. Yeah. And I was just dragging my my fly line, my sinking fly line with uh, Prince Nymph on it, I believe, uh, behind the canoe. Yeah. And Chase was multiple meters up ahead. And I thought I had caught a snag. And it turned out this thing gave me a few tugs few heavy tugs before it snapped off and my partner carly will forever remember it as the story uh where i lie and say the biggest fish in my life got away on me (laughs) but it just goes to show how how even early in my already early fly fishing career we had really no clue of what we were doing chase and (laughs) and we just got lucky i i just i was lucky to, to have some random trout i think come nail this this nymph like kind of just flutter fluttering around along the bottom of child's lake and and duck mountain provincial park (laughs) yeah yeah just uh yeah just uh kind of got a laugh at how many how many factors you got to consider here when you're when you are fly fishing it's not like dropping a jig in a minnow in a a lot of ways here but you were doing you know you were you weren't catching fish or you're doing a good thing by moving covering water you know expose your fly to as many fish as you can obviously you got it at the right depth and removing it in a right uh, pace to interest a fish um you know and and you'll remember that and sometimes that that tug and that break off the stories it generates and how what that fish becomes in your mind sort of drives you to go again right oh i gotta i want to repeat that you know i want to get that fish you know the ultimate capper with that story would be to catch that fish and find your prince nymph still wedged in its jaw. <laughs> <laughs> 10 Actually, years later, a, 10 years later. If you'll, if you'll let me, I'll tell you a great story. I had some friends of mine used to own a fly shop in, in BC and um, they got into saltwater fishing on the fly, uh, the West coast of Vancouver around the Tofino area used still does, but used to have a specific way West resort out there used to have a, a salmon on the fly program uh, for chasing coho in the, sort of the waters around there that were um you know created through volcanic activity so they were all piled up lots of islands sunken reefs and shallow and and uh, but if you went back into clackwood sound 
it got really quite deep the way things had formed and you would always fish these pinnacles when there was no tide movement because they would congregate be a great place to find rock bass which is like a uh or black bombers they were nicknamed they were like a saltwater largemouth and they big schools on them they would just cloud up a sounder and and uh you know you could they were pretty easy you know they were pretty forgiving fish but around these pinnacles always lived lingcod which are like a giant sculpin um massive fish really uber aggressive so my friend had caught a, a one of these black bombers and a lingcod came up huge lingcod you know 40 pounds plus or something and took the black bomber and ate it on off the you know like a pike would come up and maybe eat a small walleye or a perch off the off the line and disappeared back into the depths and the good thing about these uh lingcod is they're territorial right so if you see one there you come back and he'll be there so friend got all fired up about it tied something a big streamer to really appeal to this thing he was going to catch this lingcod you know and they taste pretty darn good really good fish and chips and uh so it went out the next day and caught it or caught a lingcod, a big one, was really proud of himself, kept it, was cleaning it, out spills out the black bass, He the and his he got his fly back. <laughs> <laughs> he took pictures because he said, nobody's going to believe this. So we had these kind of step-by-steps of this thing going on. So oh, it was quite, that's, that's probably the best get your fly back story. I've, you know, I've caught fish before that had other person's flies in their mouth, but nothing tops that. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, so our, our buddy on the, on the West coast there, he's uh he runs a guide in operation. Shout out to Andrew's West coast adventures. Um, but, uh, we, we did a bit of linging with him. Never was successful, but he does, he did a little bit of underwater camera work with, uh, yeah. you know, just on the line or whatever. And yeah. you talk, you just said, uh, there's how aggressive they were, but you want to like, watch a fish hammer a lure man that is something else watching yeah. those guys yeah hit they're, that they're thing. nasty and they they're you know you got to try and keep them from going back in their lair because once they get tucked back in the rocks not getting them out right they just sort of somehow clamp themselves in there right so yeah um yeah we i got one once about 12 pounds on the fly and that was that was pretty good and a bigger one followed it up Right. And we were all in a frenzy. Get a fly down. It's like when a big pike follows in, right? Get a fly in the water. Right. And it just glided off into the depths. We never got it again. But, uh, you know, it was pretty exciting for a bit. <laughs> no kidding. That's awesome. Um, no, we're, we were chatting here before the podcast, too. You were saying Manitoba had a few, like, uh, really great still water opportunities, although they've been subject to change as of late uh did you want to maybe expand on that a little bit and what you were alluding to yeah i i um you know i started coming out to particularly the lakes in southwest manitoba and the russell area i got invited to i remember seeing reports you know of seeing these big brown trout seeing these big rainbows and, and tigers and was intrigued by them you know sort of stowed that in the back of my mind and um with the television show i do some co-hosting with the new fly fisher I got the opportunity to go out there and fish those lakes with the biologist at the time, Ken Kansas. I don't know if you've heard of Ken. Mm-hmm. He's a legend out your way as far as fisheries management. And he had he was the regional biologist there and, and was really keen on developing those trout fisheries. And I had a really good experience out there. You know, the techniques I used out in the West, particularly coronami fishing, was really I had a day on West Goose Lake that was just to die for uh just unbelievably good um fishing chronomids and um so anyway i i you know i had gone out there a number of times and then i did a 
local fly club, uh, fly tying club here in down in Red Deer. And they were interested because I would do um, these, uh, you know, once a year, I would go in for a day and do a tying clinic with them. And I, at lunch, I would put on old new fly fisher episodes that uh, back when things when tv shows you could put them on a cd or a dvd you guys, you guys are probably too young to know what those are but uh <laughs> um yeah the round things yeah, yeah. i burnt a few dvds in <laughs> really my day. small record right really, what <laughs> yeah you, um anyway so uh they said let's you know would you come out with us and um we'll fish there so we did and we used to uh that started it and then the friend of mine in the club, we sort of said, wow, I think we could do some trips out there. So we started developing those trips um, and did them for 10 years, do two trips, two week long trips in the spring and a week long trip in the fall. And we were able, we would bring the boats out and, and all that stuff for a while we were cooking for them. And then back, you know, up at six and to bed at two for two weeks straight was a little hard on, on the body. And then we ended up the Russell Inn we partnered with was really good. Uh, put a package together, but we had anglers coming. I remember doing presentations down at the fly fishing show in Pleasanton, California, which is the Bay Area. It's about Pleasanton's about 35, 40 minutes or so south of Oakland on the east side of the Bay, right across from San Francisco and San Mateo. And doing presentations there, thinking, you know, why is a California angler? But they're fascinated. So I was bringing, I had people from Washington State, Oregon, California, Texas. Western Canada. I had people from BC where it's known for its stillwater fishing wanting to come out and experience this because, it, you know, when it was in its prime, it was uh, to me the best stillwater fly fishing I'd ever experienced in North America because you had, you know, it was pretty well unknown. So I remember a couple of American guests who were teasing me that I was taking them to private waters because we would go to a lake like Twin. There'd be 10 or 12 of us in our group. So we'd have like six boats every two to a boat kind of thing. And we were the only we had the lake to ourselves for the entire day right it was rare to see other people on the lake and if you did you saw a couple or three right because we were going midweek um so we had that remote experience you had large average fish size you know um there was some lakes that we used to fish that were we, we were getting fish well over 10 pounds um Jeez. you know consistently and, and and then the diversity of the species you know you had rainbows you had browns you had tigers and tiger trout were always you know twin lakes was always the the pick of the litter for many people because they'd never seen or caught a tiger trout before they're you know when they're on the job they're very cooperative they love chasing minnow and leech patterns and they are suckers for coronamids they love them the biggest we had one of my guests he probably caught the manitoba record but we did a lousy job of measuring it like we just a friend of mine was with them. He had a one of those um, bump boards that uh, I think it was 24 inches long, and the half, you know, a quarter of the tail and and the body was still hanging over a good six inches, and that was taken on a size 14 coronamid in about 14 feet of water. Wow! Right, so that was a massive tiger trout uh, then. So yeah, I, I loved going out there, um, you know, doing that at times a year, but unfortunately. Um, you know, some of those lakes became infested with suckers and perch, um, some pike, but the suckers and perch in particular were particularly hard. It seemed to me on the rainbows because they would eat all the food rainbows like to eat. And, you know, the browns were a little bit more uh, durable for it because they like to chase minnows more, but your rainbows like to eat their bugs as well. And of course the suckers would, you know, vacuum them up and, and eat all the coronamids up. And I remember being on Patterson one day, the, the coronamid hatch was so intense the shut the, the the surface of the lake was brown with all the shucks from the 
she's the uh, pupa and and then and towards the latter part when i was doing the trips i was joking you'd see one lone pupa flying one lone coronamid flying out i would say there's the world's loneliest coronamid because you just the hatches were just gone hmm. you just didn't see that intensity anymore so i'd love it to rebound and and i know it's hard once um you know and, and not necessarily because perch and and suckers are, are native to manitoba but you know once they get into a body of water it's pretty and they start breeding because they're you know particularly perch they're active in low water temperatures high water temperatures they eat the same food as trout and they breed like rabbits so it's just not a good combination for for trout and lots i saw lots of cormorants out there too we were sitting one day we must have counted 60 cormorants sitting on a beaver lodge and somebody wonder what how much does a cormorant have to eat and uh um we're like on google five pounds a day it's like oh that's a lot of trout <laughs> right so I think, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, when they restock the lake with those cormorant uh, bits and bites, <laughs> you know, those small um, trout. Right, right, yeah. Cormorants, oh, those those slide down real good, right? Yeah. yeah. I, can remember, I can remember being on Tekarik, um, you know, when they stock the, when they stock the, the lake, the, the, the freshly stocked fish all mill around in a big ball by the boat launch. Yeah. Right? They get acclimatized. And um, as we recovered our boats, there was a big brown trout chasing them around, trying to eat them up. So, yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen similar things with the cormorants just making quick work of, and it, you, you hate to see it because you know the that those uh, those trout are pretty labor intensive to to have in that water. So yeah, well, in England, they a lot of their fisheries when they stock them, stock them at a minimum two pounds to make them just too big for a cormorant to go after because they have real cormorant issues on a lot of their lakes too. And they're a protected bird. So if you stock, you know, sort of more cost-effective fingerling or catchables, um, all you're doing is making fat cormorants. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of a shame that way. So I hope it rebounds back. I, my wife and I have talked about just coming back out there again for a little trip and snoop around and go fish the ducks and, and not have the pressure of having, you know, trying to ensure that 12 other anglers have a trip of a lifetime and want to come back again and, and do all that stuff. So, yeah. I wonder if there's some big, good lakes. I wonder if there's some big perch on that, uh, on that, those lakes now. <laughs> that, uh, uh, well, to Carrick, I was on there when I was filming, we were on there with one of the ministry's uh, shocking boats. So we, we were out and we shocked um, the launch bay and around the, there's a, I don't know if you fished to Carrick, but there's a Thule Island, um, yeah. sort of out in the entrance to the main lake. So the shocking only was effective to about 10 feet. And I was amazed at what we shocked up. Like we were shocking up master perch, master angler perch, um, some suckers that were in, you know, I always assumed the suckers would be over the deeper, muddier bottoms. That's where we tended to, to catch them when we were fishing uh, bloodworm or coronamid larva patterns. And, uh, but God, they were in two and three feet of water and they were four and five pounds easy. Wow. And then we even shocked up a couple of small pike, right, that had got in there. And it's all, you know, those waters in high water years are all interconnected. And once yeah. the inmates from one lake get to the other lake, it's it's hard to to get them out, right? I think originally some of the some of the people I spoke to blamed it on, you know, ice fishermen using, you know, bait in the in in the winter months. And I'm going, where are you getting live perch from in the middle of February in rural Manitoba? Like I just not a lot of live bait shops open either there or open at that time of the year. Right. Um, so. And you have had a kind of a special seat. So I'm, I'm curious of what your perspective is on this. If you're hauling in, you know, 12 people a couple times a year to a, a place like Russell, I know Russell 
and it, it's a nice town. It's it's not huge though. I'm sure no. the local people really noticed and probably appreciated that that little boost of tourism coming in. Well, we were, you know, dollar wise, you know, I was we were probably spending, you know, with what I spent on accommodation, and we would we would bring some food out with us, but obviously it's much easier to buy it out there and. You know our alcohol bills, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Tim Hortons. Um, you know we introduced a lot of Americans to Tim Hortons and Hawkins yeah. cheesies. Um, but I bet you, you know, I was bringing in forty to fifty thousand dollars worth of revenue in between food and accommodation and gas and you know all the things. Yeah, and, yeah. And and um, you know and and you know yeah, I'm sure that that hurts, right? But. Um, and I used to work closely, particularly with um, Rianne at the Russell Inn. She's a, a you know, a very savvy, um, you know, um, operator out there and marketing and things like that and really helped us and really tried to, you know, cater to the fly fisher and realize that, uh, you know, if you ever go in the Russell Inn, there is there's plaques on the wall that, you know, I provided or the TV shows I filmed or this fly plaques and they would, you know, cater to fly fishers. They understood they had a fly fishers package they would put together and all that stuff because it was such a great central hub. Um, you know, you've got a nice hotel in there. You've got a gas station. You've got a beer and wine store. You've got a Timmy's now. Um, you know, you've got a, you know, a, the, the bar in there, a nice little restaurant. You got everything you need. And, you know, an hour's drive, you can, you know, when it was at its peak, we would, for five or six days fishing, we would fish a different lake every day, right? It was it was possible to do that. You'd fish to Carrick, Patterson, Twin, Pibus, uh, Corstaphine, um, West Goose, if, if, if you wanted to, right? Uh, even even East Goose. We, we tried to, you know, fish a more wilderness experience, you know, and fish those more remote, remote lakes. But that Russell-Roblin area is such a great base camp um, to operate from. That's pretty awesome. I, I hope there's, uh, I mean, I, I know they, they, that area always comes up in con, uh, conversation quite a bit when we're talking about like fisheries improvements and stuff like that in Manitoba. So I, w- I would love to see it back at the, the good old days as, as you seen it back, back then yeah. too. They, they yes. are, I mean, people do still target that area quite a bit and it's, it's known for its larger fish you know big browns and stuff like that but i don't know if it's it's lights out like it used to be it was and it was funny when we first started going out there i always made a point when any of our group went to get gas or buy a you know case of beer or timmy's you know you know and particularly when you're buying licenses you go to the co-op and buy your license and stuff and you put your you know the person puts their license down and they're from idaho or california that's you know, a little out of town mm-hmm. and made it make a point of letting them know why they were there. Right. So that the locals, because sometimes the locals didn't even realize they had that kind of trout fishing. They're all kind of walleye focused, you know, Lake of the Prairies, that kind of stuff, which are great fisheries. But, um, you know, frankly, I'd love to go fish Lake of the Prairies on the fly, but every time I drive by Lake of the Prairies, it looks like the North Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> it does get a little windy in Southwest Manitoba, right? Yeah. Well, anywhere in the prairies. Um, so, you know, it would it would be, you know, to understand the, the value of that. One time we joke, a lot of times we would be in the week of the big tournament, the big walleye tournament on Lake of the Prairie. So we've got all our little trout boats, you know, 12 footers. I would have my 17 foot boat on there, which was by trout standards as a monster. And then you got these guys driving in with their Lunds, you know, the 250 Yamahas on the back. I like electronics, so I'm all googly eyed over their, you know, all their electronics they've got. 
and they'd have the parade and, and they were joking. We should put us in the parade one day, you know, have one of the guys walking down the street with his waders on holding his float tube up and <laughs> all this stuff. It would have gone. <laughs> and here come the crazy fly fishers in the back, right? Like the clowns, everybody's waving at us. It would have been fun. It was just amazing how, but you could certainly see how that tournament brought in a lot of tourism dollars and, you know, let, you know, people know what a great fishery was out there. Right. So, Mm-hmm. And we would see a lot of those walleye guys coming out on the mm-hmm. trout lakes to get a little trout fishing in before they, they have to go to Lake of the Prairies and, and uh, earn their money. Yeah, the, uh, the, um, the fishing industry has been a, a bit of a, a center point here in Manitoba and, and the uh, center point of communication as well, just how much money it brings into the province. And uh, it, it's pretty incredible to see some yeah. of those numbers. Like they're talking – up to like $600 million with all the assets that you purchase intending to use them for fishing. So we're talking like pickup trucks and stuff like that too. Oh, yeah, as well. But like, yeah. it's a, it's a big industry and it's, it's yeah. crazy how much, you know, and lots it's of, lots of, it's, every, yeah. yeah, it's huge in every province. And, and even my home province here in Alberta could do, I think personally, you know, I'm a little biased of course, but could do a much better job of, you know, I think a lot of our provinces are so resource focused, forestry, mining and oil and gas. And, and those are important industries in our country. I'm not trying to believe it, but there's lots of other things as well that could generate income and diversify economic, you know, bust the boom and bust mentality that can be with resources. Um, you know, like you talked about, it's, you know, in every province, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario is very well tuned in, you know, after SARS hit that their tourism took a huge impact and ever since those dates they have been a really staunch supporter of the fisheries and the lodges because they have a lot of lodges and resorts there same what you have in manitoba right and you know i you know i i i don't get to fish smallmouth bass and things like that so i'd love to come and chase some of those on the fly um you know go fish lake of the woods just across the across the border in there those kind of fisheries um, just for the challenge of, of getting stuff on, on the fly, right? Yeah. And doing something different. You know, I, I mentioned I'd fish Lockport and got channel cats on the fly. That's, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I think that the larger hat, uh, feather in your hat there is that you caught a Northern Pike in Lockport. So yeah, apparently that was, that was my first or second cast. And I'm like, well, you know, it, I didn't, you know, I didn't get to see it and I drag it in by my feet and it's like, somebody said, that's like 15, 17 pounds. I'm like, Oh. You're not supposed to catch those. I'm like, well, there's one. <laughs> I don't know. Um, like I said, there, it's I call that box of chocolates fishing because every cast was something different. Some things I'd never caught, so I pull it in. And I was with Stu Thompson, who's a a famous uh, fly fisher. He's just got a new book out. That uh, congratulations to Stu for doing that. Um, I Stu, get over here. What the hell is that? <laughs> oh, that's a you know, that's a what is it? Big, a, buffalo or whatever a red horse whatever oh yeah big and then i got you know you'd get a white bass you get a a, a walleye the greenbacks they were kind of neat um carp and then the channel cats moved in and then that was i remember the first one that kind of we're just kind of fishing sink tips swinging the fly small clousers and then you couple of strips and all of a sudden it just stops and you feel like you hook the bottom and you're like oh no and all of a sudden you know the line is like moving off like like logs and rocks don't move and uh, then it's just a tug of war, right? And I think after about two hours, I was lying on the bank 
not really understanding how many ticks there are in Manitoba at the time, but I didn't get any. Um, you know, I, I since since my experience in Southwest Manitoba learned all about ticks. Um, uh, you know, just was exhausted. You know, and had a really fun day. You know, it's always fun when you've got those mixed fisheries. You never know what you're going to get. It, it's it, it's really good fun. Uh, I'm gu- I'm guessing you weren't using your seven weight Mystic M series. No, I wasn't little... using those rods at the time. I think we were using eight, nine weights. Um, you know, that was, geez, almost 20 years ago now. God, am I getting mm-hmm. old? Now I'm depressed. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> How much time flies. Yeah, I'd love to get back there. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Oh, man. When you're talking about uh, Russell earlier and, and how the locals were kind of, you know, you're not sure how how well they know the the trout fisheries and what they actually had in their backyard and that's what kind of how i feel my my uh opinion was i guess around uh lockport growing up i mean we did quite a bit of fishing there and we always did good and but i never really thought about how how good we actually had it there until like the last probably handful half half dozen years now we've been fishing it quite a bit um a lot of catfishing but in the, the more we fish the more we learn obviously and it, it's it is pretty incredible how how many species of fish that you can target there and and uh the fact that i can go down there and fly fish and catch catfish and i've, I've heard about i had buddies do it and chatted about it um over the years uh but now that i've finally been down there and done it it's just it's a it's a different world and it's something that I've fallen in love with and I'm I just it, it's almost like I can't believe it took me this long to discover it you know yeah. so well it's you know and that's I think that's good for fly fishing as a sport because I think a lot of people think it's just a you know traditional dry fly trout stream fishing stuff you know how it origins back into England and stuff like that but it's my motto with fly if it swims and eats i believe i can catch it yeah right the i funny can figure it out you know get to know the fish its tendencies what it likes to eat where it likes to live and and and, and figure out how to get a fly in front of its face yeah the funny thing was i i once i had a couple experiences down there i i told tristan i said you got to come down here one day with me and we got to <laughs> like get on this and we're uh we're doing all right and of course we're not the the best fly fisher folk out there so we're losing a few flies to rocks and and all that and we're trying to take some pictures down there and catching a couple drum a couple cats and and uh tristan i can't remember what you were doing you're talking on the phone or something and your fly would just like come oh yeah streaming across out of there and like just dangle in the water for a second and, i was trying to take pictures of you yeah and he was just he couldn't keep the saugers off of the fly they're just coming yeah. up and right beside yeah, him i got a, like, got a new technique for you there Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the the rod under the armpit iphone uh pose yeah yeah <laughs> just killing saugers you, with you, that. you just dip your little bully bugger right on top of the water like that and uh yeah. Careful how you say that. Dip your little woolly bugger. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So we got into a little bit of the weeds into the weeds with this yeah. one a little bit, but uh um way back when there we we're, were chatting about your your journey through the the fly fishing world and uh, I think we kind of ended up, you know, you were you're just getting into the the fly supply shop there. And I'm curious how you're, I mean, looking up to where your career's at now, like you're huge educator, um, guide, fly designer, video producer, and it's it's not hard to find you on, on the internet at all. Like Google, Google your name and there's just endless amounts of, of uh, information, videos and, and stuff like that that comes up. But um, I'm curious, 
A, did you ever think this is where the fly fishing journey would take you? And kind of how did you, how did you start getting into like the the media world? Yeah, that's, you know, you know, I, I talked about that was the aha moment was, you know, discovering fly fishing and just, it just, something clicked inside it. I, that passion, and it's been there ever since I started. And I'm, you know, as I meet other like-minded fly fishers, I'm not alone. I, I used to think it was unique to me, but it's not, uh, which is a good thing for the sport. Um, but I started, you know, I was still had the nine to five job back then. And I, um, you know, I, ironically, I, I took a fly fishing class through night school and the gentleman teaching it was part of a fly club. And I joined that fly club. I remember going there, you know, sort of by yourself. You don't know anybody, you know, so it was a little bit of a lump in your throat. Would you be accepted or would they just, you know, look down at you or whatever? But they were very uh, welcoming and I learned a ton. You know, um, the club would have week, you know, monthly meetings. We'd have what we call method sessions where it was another meeting that would talk about a specific method. We had fish outs where we go somewhere and all those activities. And I didn't start tying flies right away. I, you know, I didn't think I would, you know, I was sort of indifferent to it. Um, but then I took a friend of mine that I met in the club, convinced me, let's take a, a night school class. And wow, that just took it to a whole new level. Um, you know, design, you know, tying your own flies and catching something, a fish on something you just, you tied. And then later, as you sort of get more confident, you start designing your own flies and, and, and breaking away from the traditional stuff. And then that led to me, um you know i just got into it and tied a lot of flies you know usually you get better at something the more you do it you said that earlier and i started tying flies for a local fly shop so that's how i got my gear is i would just tie on accounts and you know i need a new reel i get the new reel they were gracious enough to give me the reel and then i'd have to tie my brains out to pay it off <laughs> and uh, so that made you get better and um that started asked me if i was interested in doing some fly tying courses so i did that and then I started when I was still in the club dabbling around with writing. So I started writing little articles in the club newsletter. And um, that sort of, I don't know if ever ignited a passion in writing, but I um, <laughs> um, started writing more. And then I'd always had a, you know, when I was trying to find out about Stillwater fly patterns in particular, there wasn't a lot of books around about it. So I had over the years been, you know, developing my own patterns and, and being introduced, by, you know, to Stillwater patterns of other people. And I um, proposed a concept uh, to a couple of publishers about a book um, called Fly, and it, the book was entitled Fly Patterns for Still Waters. So that was, I think it just finished publication now. So it was out for 20 years um, and it was sort of the first specific book targeted at, well, there was other books, but it was one of the few books that was you know, specifically targeted at lake fishing. And that got me sort of when you write a, uh, you know, a book like that, it sort of exposes you to magazines as well. So I started writing uh, magazine articles, um, mostly for American magazines. Ironically, I couldn't get a Canadian magazine interested in me. <laughs> so which was great because I was writing for, you know, more higher profile American uh, magazines. My first article was an American angler. I've had, you know, articles published in Fly Fisherman, uh, all the mag, you know, just about every uh, publication now i've got a column i do with bc outdoors magazine i've had a fly time column with them for over 10 or 12 years at least um so anyway that started and then of course you get your name out there as you guys talk about google me and then fly clubs want you to come and talk to them and then that leads you to um, getting into fly fishing shows to be a featured presenter or speaker um and then 
you know, it's, it ultimately starts... leads you to the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Exactly, this is the pinnacle. <laughs> I, I, there's nowhere but downhill after this. Point. I, you know, when you guys reached out, I was like, oh my god, Outdoors podcast. I'm being sorry. I'm, I'm a dry, sarcastic person. Past, you know, my oldest son's a smart ass. My wife's. I don't know where he got that from. Um, but uh, you're right. It is a pinnacle. Um, I'm having I'm having fun here with you guys. So. Uh, um, and then, of course, I, that got um, t- television shows. You know, would you like to come on one of our episodes? And I went with the new fly fisher. I we went into Fortress Lake, which is a, a trophy brook trout destination just into BC on the Rocky Mountains. And you know, I was nervous as hell because uh, um, you know I'd never fished the lake before. I envisioned this steep mountain lake with little in the way of good fly water. But we had a really good trip and. Uh, the producer, uh, uh, Colin McEwen, you know, we, we hit it off and, uh, I've been doing shows off and on for them for a number of years now, um, and film with other television shows and, you know, now do podcasts and start producing my own, uh, videos. I've done some instructional DVDs or now digital downloads. Um, um, you know, do a lot of vlogging now um Mm -hmm. and now with with the pandemic and all the changes that that put in as far as uh you know you couldn't do face-to-face where it was uh uh, you know you weren't able to do it but uh you know that little program called zoom comes in and now the whole world's completely conversant in online communication and video communication and now you know 25 30 years ago i'd always wanted to do online learning because i just couldn't you get clubs that you know, just, you just couldn't get to them, but now people can, you know, either watch you. I just finished doing a six session, uh, chronomet course live, uh, for six weeks. And I'm also looking at doing what they call, um, evergreen courses where people can just sign on and take the course whenever they want, right. On a variety of, of different subject matter. So it's just, I like to teach other people. I like to, I remember the frustrations of learning. I'm going, you know, the amount of money you spend on gas and, eight bazillion flies and gear um which of course you still have to buy of course we all know that but uh you know you're just banging off the wall you know trial and error method is is a good learning experience in some ways but it's painful and uh, you know anything i can do to help somebody lessen that learning curve that i had to go through because when i started fly fishing in my early 20s there was no internet um there was books magazines uh, and just getting out there and doing it and of course, if you ran into some locals, they may have been pretty secretive and, you know, you were a young punk, they weren't going to show you nothing, <laughs> right? You had to put your time in, um, you know, there was a bit of a, a process you had to go through as in a fly fishing apprentice to, to get along. Well, I'm completely the other way. I love taking, you know, new beginners out and, and helping them learn how to cast and how to present and how to read the water and, and just anything I can do um, to help them along and make life easier for them. Oh man, I I think back to my my first outing on uh, on the red there by Lockport, and uh, I'm casting away, catching a rock every second cast. Didn't have one hit, and the guy next to me is catching a fish on every second cast. And yeah. I finally, I worked up the the guts to go over there and ask him, "What, what are you doing, are you man?" Doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, and he actually kind of led me to my first fish that I caught. He gave me a couple of flies and said throw this on and throw some things line it it just be. like man the the power of a mentor and an educator like the stuff mm-hmm. the work that you're doing is just in, incredible i think 
Well, it's, you know, there, there, unfortunately, there are a few people that aren't always that, but it's really good to hear that, that people want to help out because we didn't get hit by beams of light overnight. I can remember filming some TV shows at some lakes and having some local come up and be quite upset that we were filming there. Like we were going to, you know, give away the entire world and he would come there the next day and there'd be 40,000 people in the parking lot. And that's just not the reality, right? And a lot of times, you know, on the new fly fishing, particularly because it's educational based, we would be just talking about a technique and that lake happened to be the backdrop of where we were using this technique. So it wasn't about the lake or whatever, but I remember, you know, it was, they, how did you learn about the lake, sir? Well, you know, you didn't get hit with a beam of light or, you know, some little edgy plug in overnight that sort of filled your brains in. Oh, I'm going to go to this lake tomorrow because I just know about it now. No, you, somebody told you and, and all that stuff. And, and it's important that these bodies of water have friends. So when there's a threat to them, you know, there's enough of a groundswell to hopefully do something about it. But if nobody knows about it, who cares about it? It's just human nature, right? If, you know, it's, you know, in the world we're living in today, it's, if nobody knows about it and sees the struggles that are going on, then nobody cares about it, right? Nothing gets done, nothing changes. So it's, it's similar to those kind of things. So I think it's important to pass along the torch and the legacy, right? Because I envy younger anglers today because they have so much at their disposal to learn with, with the internet, YouTube, um, you know, fly shoot, you know, all the things that they can do that just weren't available, right? And the changes in equipment. Right. The, the stuff from fly tying materials to to, you know, the, the rods, the lines, the tackle we've got nowadays is unbelievable. Right. I can't imagine how I fished years ago with what I did. Right. It's just I, Yeah, I was going to mean that I was meaning to ask you about equipment, too. Like, is there obviously you're bringing your rod with you every time, but is there a piece of equipment that really stands out for you when you're when you're fishing still water that that kind of makes the difference or uh or something that you you didn't think would impact your your game as much as but it does. Um, probably electronics, um, because um, obviously a good pair of sunglasses too. Uh, but electronics, because years ago when we started using them, those of us that were really really serious into the stillwater stuff, it was frowned upon. Um, it was considered cheating because everybody called them fish finders. I always call them sounders because fish finding is just one thing they can do. Um, and, and nowadays, if you don't have some sort of electronics in your boat in the form of a sounder, you're, you're really behind the eight ball, right? Because it tells you your depth, your water temperature, your bottom contours, your bottom makeup, you know, you can mark spots with GPS. Now you can even have, like I use the hummingbird helix series. I've got a helix seven. Now you've got auto chart live. You make your own private little lake maps because a lot of the bathymetric or underwater contour maps for small lakes are just not around. Right. So you can make your own and, and it's just an inv invaluable tool um, to have with you. Right. Plus, when you got young kids, it's like cheap Nintendo. You just put it on demo mode. It keeps them busy for hours. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I've actually we've run into the uh, the opposite problem. They've been a little too fixated on it. And all of a sudden you've got all the different setting settings. Oh, yeah, on. You can you can it's it, you can. Uh, you know, thank God you can hit restore factory presets because you're so far <laughs> off base. It's like, what the hell has happened with my frequencies here? Uh, and I'm the world's worst. If it's slow, I'm banging buttons and, you know, trying to figure out down imaging better or side scan or I'll only fish, you know, with one of those working that day or something just so I can better interpret, you know, what that screen is telling me. Um, but, you know, I always, you know, people always sometimes they say, oh, I just want to get a sounder. I, I just want a, a cheap one or I just want, it does the basics. And I said, 
Um, I recommend getting the most complicated one you can afford or justify or whatever it takes to get it and then learn how to use it. Because sometimes you have features on there you didn't think you'd use and then you find out about them and you're like, how did I ever live life without it? And the analogy I use is like, who would buy a car today with roll-up windows, right? Power windows all the way. And then the latest vehicle I had had a heated steering wheel, which for an R climate in the winter, a heated steering wheel is a pretty cool thing, right? But never having one before, you don't know what you've got. Just like, wow, this is nice just to put my hands on the steering wheel and not free, you know, not get stuck to it because <laughs> frozen, right? So yeah. that's why I hate rentals. I go and get a nice heated everything, yeah. heated seats, heated oh, yeah. wheel. Yeah, in our climate, mirrors. if you don't have all that heated stuff, and now they got cooling seats in the summer months, right? It's just once you have it, you're like, how did I ever live without it, right? So that's the my parallel that i use for electronics and it's it's fascinating to to learn how to use that tool right it's like buying an expensive camera it's you figure out how to use it to justify why you paid so much for it so when your wife or other significant other is challenging you like we spent all this money on this and you don't use it right so well well that's yeah. that's the beauty of the spend right there too because um like you, you have to, you, you have to go out and use it to learn it properly. So like, that's the excuse to get out fishing more right there. Exactly. Yeah. I've got to get, I got to get my mileage out of this thing. I, you know, it'd be, it'd be, you know, yeah, it's, honey, it's I... a good excuse to try. I haven't tried that one yet. Usually, you know, I've been married 38 years thing coming up this year. So usually it's anything to get me out of the house and take, take the kids with me. Right. <laughs> Peace and quiet. Take the dog too. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so, uh, I mean, back to the educator portion of this, we, I mean, the kind of one of the reasons we had you on, on the podcast is you get, you have an upcoming, um, uh, education session happening, happening with the, uh, Manitoba Fly Fishing Association here in Manitoba. And, yep. uh, I, I'm going to elicit a couple, uh, tips and tricks out of you yet before we, before we leave. But, um, why don't we, why don't you, uh, can you give that seminar a quick plug here? Yeah. I'm going to be there. Uh, <laughs> a little more detail. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, so it's coming up on the. Uh, yeah, remind me of the dates. I know the dates. Are next fr- next Friday and uh, Saturday. 25, 26, so, 27, right? Yeah, so I'll, I'll be there I'm doing a variety of still water topics, um, you know, using sinking lines, um, um, how to approach a new lake, um, just finalizing, the, putting the finishing touches on the agenda. I'll be doing some. Uh, fly tying so i have a, a camera with me um, that i can set up so people you know a large number can watch me break thread on the big screen and and tie some appropriate patterns for for manitoba you know that i've used out there and and, and those kind of things so kind of a blend of that and uh, so it's a lot of fun because it's good interaction um with uh with the people watching and stuff and learn from their experiences and have them uh, like you guys have talked about, reflect some of the challenges they've had and how would I approach it. Those are those are great discussions because you have some really good into the weeds, down rabbit holes um, discussions that are really quite educational. Yeah, the, the best part about going to something like that as well is um, you get to have those discussions and you get to hear uh, questions and ideas from other folks that you might not drum up in your own mind mm-hmm. and you get to learn a lot exactly. that way. You go, oh, that's, that's an interesting way to do that, right? And try to pull that out of the audience so you're not just standing up there lecturing imperiously up at the front is sort of bouncing around that's a great question what's here's how i'd handle it how's some of your other what's some of the other because there's 
you know, there's, it's amazing how many you could do four or five different things that would could change the odds in your favor. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Depending on the situation. Yeah, totally. And I, I just want to plug the club one more time here just because I, I like I I think I mentioned earlier, but I'm I'm a member of the Manitoba Fly Fishers Association. This year I just joined yep. and um I've been uh members of, of other uh clubs in the past here in Manitoba, not fly fishing clubs, but it's it's incredible how involved they are in yeah, uh, in very bringing active club. Oh, it's crazy. Every week they have something new going on where this beers and bugs where they tie tie flies yeah, i was looking the, on their the social pages beers and bugs i'm that's something i'd be interested in yeah totally <laughs> um but that was similar to the osprey fly fishers i joined in in british columbia very active very open um you know to uh genders and all different age groups and all that stuff because some some fly clubs were you know um kind of old school um at the time uh and, and those those have changed but a great opportunity to learn you're a bunch of like-minded people um all telling their experiences passing on their tricks stuff you would never see in books or magazines right there were because they were unique to that area right they may not have that wider appeal although they should because what works in manitoba you probably find out works in wisconsin and oregon and alaska and new zealand as well so um it's just fishing right the fish don't know any international boundaries or anything like that you know and sometimes those unique things you've learned in your home waters you apply on on uh, on other waters uh, those fish have never seen that before yeah right so yeah. i know when i started coming to manitoba and started fishing coronamids nobody everybody was you know tended to fish buggers and streamers and those kind of things and and uh you know i there's so many coronamids flying around i couldn't help myself Right. And it, those fish had never seen it. Right. So I was having the time of my life. Yeah. Right. Because these fish are being fed what they're eating and they've never seen a fake coronamid. So they are very um, accepting of anything that looks remotely like a coronamid and they're eating it. So it's, it's, it's good fun. Oh, man. That sounds awesome. Do you feel like I got to ask, do you, do you have like a, a wild card fly that you tie or something that's, that's really unique or? kind of out of the box in some ways mostly it's more of a style if you're not catching fish i tend to go to the what we call attractor flies because fish don't always take our flies out of a feeding response you know they're aggressive predators so you can trigger a grab out of aggression ter territoriality curiosity so in, and and it's a it's a technique that's very popular in lakes in england um, so you're fishing flies like blobs and boobies and fabs these kind of gaudy flies and and you know the materials a lot of them have blended foam in so they have these unique wobbly or rise and fall just unique actions um so that's sort of when all else fails you know fly fishing is all built around matching the hatch you know mm -hmm. imitating the food sources and and that works majority of the time but there are those times that fish are just not in the mood to eat whether it's weather change lunar phase uh water temperatures reasons we'll never know um you know mm -hmm. so you, we're out there on the water and we want to catch a fish so sometimes we got to force the hand a little bit so that's probably where i would go you know i like fishing a fly called a fab which stands for fomars blob an english <laughs> pattern with a split foam tail it was a uh, fly designed um because fisheries in england were banning the boobies so you couldn't have flies with foam on the front foam eyeballs so mm. the scottish team said well if we put the foam at the back <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I guess that's technically legal. So off they went. So that and then blobs. Um, in recent years, you know, when trout and lakes feed on zooplankton, little microscopic 
um, organisms that feed on phytoplankton, which is even smaller. Um, you know, when a fish would be on those, particularly in the late summer months into fall, um, when the trout have sort of migrated out of the shallow area because it's too warm and less oxygen, they'll slide out into deeper water. And that's where the zooplankton loves to hang out. And they would, they just strain right through it, right? And they would get on this stuff. And it was just incredibly frustrating because how do you match something size 96 right you just don't so but we fish these blobs now that match the colors and it looks like a clump of and we fish them under an indicator and you know you could be in 20 feet of water fishing these 12 to 15 feet down and have some incredibly we almost look forward to it now it's like come on get on the zooplankton you don't know what we know now fish so (laughs) (laughs) what was typically a frustrating experience is now we relish it so um so fish a lot that's sort of where i go is when they won't eat the natural stuff um you know within each discipline i have favorite flies you know chronomids i've got a probably you know, I've got way more chronomids than I'll ever need, but I always have sort of my top 10. I fish all the time and I'm a big lover of balanced leeches and, and the fish and leech patterns and, mm. and those kind of things. And, and you know, mm. I, whatever they're on, I've got something I hope will pass as a, a suitable representation for them to eat it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, and I, I'm even just thinking I'm no expert by any means, but even stylistically, I've noticed like there's a a lot of personality in the flies as well too mm-hmm. i've seen some stuff on the internet that is should almost be in an art gallery the, these flies yep. are so beautiful and then i've seen other ones that are incredibly pragmatic that look like maybe just uh, a hook with a piece of red yarn dangling from yep. it and fuzz on and, a hook, belly button lint yeah <laughs> and those so, work well you know some of those flies are you know that look like art it's more of a celebration of the of the the, the art itself of fly tying but, you know, for me, a fly's got to come alive in the water. You know, it's got to have translucence and mobility, particularly with lake flies, because we don't have any current to animate it or to push it by a fish. So a fish in a river has to make a quick decision because if it doesn't eat it, it's gone. It's downstream. Whereas a trout in a lake can, or a fish in a lake can come up and inspect it a little more and be a little more wary of it, um, you know, cruise around it a little bit. And, and some of the best flies are nothing more like a hair's ear nymph. It's just a buggy looking, it looks like something you dug out of the carpet right <laughs> and yet it, it, you know you've got this perfect representation of a particular insect that looks like it'll get up and walk and in the water it's dead it's so stiff and lifeless yet that fuzzball on a hook um just they can't they can't get enough of it so that's incredible yeah. um i think we're pretty close to wrapping up here phil but i i want to get one more good story out of you um <laughs> You know, is there a uh, like most memorable or most repeated story that you might toss out when you're maybe doing some of these seminars? Well, in Manitoba, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I was fishing years ago with Stu Thompson at Lockport and uh, was fishing Stu's DDH leeches. You know, Stu had the flies. We were chasing cats and, and that box of chocolate stuff. And Stu likes, I still tease him, he doesn't like to debarb his hooks when he ties. Usually when I tie flies, I crush the barb down right away because if I damage the hook, I've only screwed the hook up, right? But Stu was telling me, well, it's all part of the proportions. And I'm looking at his leech and these woolly buggers like, where's the hook point coming to the proportions, right? So we're bantering back and forth about this. And uh, anyway, so he gave me a couple of flies and, you know, it's single barbless hook. So uh, I got a... I don't have any pliers on me to crush the barb down. So I'm going to go walk. I Stu's just down the, the run, you know, down the river from me. So I start walking towards him 
and about knee to thigh deep water. And then all of a sudden I stepped into a hole. So I am going down the slope and I'm going in, I'm getting gulps of the red river, which apparently is not good <laughs> for you. I had my camera on me, right? So it's, it got soaked, you know, and I quickly, oh, you know, as you get into that initial panic, holy crap, I might drown here. Um, and then of course, then you're all worried that the world's looking at you. So if at least you're going to drown, be, you know, do it well, right? Don't go screaming and like just lose yourself. So managed to get myself out of the water, got the camera off, tore it out. Well, Stu first asked me, are you all right? And then as soon as I was, yeah, I'm fine. You know, my ego's bruised, right? And I'm laughing. He just broke into hysterics, like, like any good friend would, right? As soon as you know you're fine, now it's funny. So he stuck me with the nickname Hat Floater because he said, all I saw was you walk in one minute, next your hat was on the surface and you were gone. Because I guess I went right under and immediately bobbed back up again, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, that one, he, we still, uh, when he asked me to um, write a review on his, on his uh, latest book, um, I had to put a little reference to the hat floater story. Something like, you know, the first time I fished with Stu and his flies, he tried to kill me. So uh, <laughs> we still up. Hopefully, I'll see Stu this this uh, coming up, and we'll reminisce about that. But I've done lots of. I've done the first television show I ever filmed in British Columbia was a show called uh, Sports Fishing BC. We were fishing early season, the trout are in the shallows, and uh, we were fishing chronomids under indicators, and the host was struggling a bit, but he finally caught one. And um, so the way the boat was situated, we were casting towards shore. The camera boat was behind us, sort of getting us from behind and to the side. And so he caught a fish, we landed. Now we have to turn to the camera side of the boat to discuss what we did and how great it was and all that. And I left my rod out, right, cast out. And all we heard was this bang splash, right? And then I look and my rod's gone and you can see the rod tip just above the surface, we're fishing about eight feet of water, just running down the shoreline. So we pick up the anchors, and my good friend at the time was running the camera boat. He said to the cameraman, keep this on. This is going to get good. So we're chasing this rod down the lake, and it was almost like when you chase a dog on a leash, and every time you get close to stepping on the leash, the dog takes off again. So as we got close to the rod, the rod would accelerate again. Eventually, I grabbed the rod pulled it in, stripped tight, got onto the fish, had it on for a few minutes, and then it eventually popped the hook, right? So my wife asked me, you know, how was your first time on television? I said, well, <laughs> I think I sounded okay, but I definitely made the blooper reel. And she said, oh, what did you do? So that was, I've, I've had a, a few, you know, I've done some dumb things. <laughs> oh, man, you can't make that stuff up. No, no, I, no, I usually, did you make that up? No, that really happened. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, amazing. Well, Phil, I think uh, I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to this one a few times to, to take in that everything that you shared with us here today. So um, I want to say a big thanks again for coming on and, and, and being so open and, and sharing all this the info you did. Um, I had a great time with you. And uh, do you have any final words for our uh, listeners here? No, um, this has been a lot of fun. You guys are fun. I'll, I'll do this again. I can, This is just like talking with a couple of fishing buddies, just telling stories around the campfire or around the table and all that stuff. If people want to get a hold of me, they've got uh, on social media, Facebook and Instagram pretty well, Phil Rowley Fly Fishing. Um, I've got my own website, flycraftangling.com. And myself and good friend Brian Chan have our own online Stillwater store uh, called the Stillwater Fly Fishing Store. It's good for search engines, apparently. <laughs> 
Um, so we've got all of our flies on there, our books, our uh, videos, DVDs, uh, accessories. It's totally tailored to the, the quirky little world of stillwater fly fishing. And uh, you can also pick up the copy of my latest book, The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, which came out uh, middle of last year. That's uh, 110,000 words, weighs about two pounds. Uh, took me three and a half years to write. Yeah. So if you've got a desk that's uneven, it's great for leveling it up, oh. <laughs> uh, those kind of things. But uh, no one close to 300 images. So uh, it's out there. It's uh, um, tried to be as comprehensive as I can on still water fly fishing from soup to nuts, gear to presentation techniques to fly patterns. So that's incredible. That's so anyone that's listening to, you can uh, head over to the description in this podcast and we'll have all the links to that below there if you're looking. Tristan, final no, final. Yeah, just thanks for coming on. I, I learned a lot today too, and uh, I'm just going to encourage you to keep your hat on in the water there. Yeah, well, maybe when I get out east and fish with you guys, we can go chase some smallmouth or something. Take me to your waters. I'd love to do that. Yeah, yeah. We don't. I don't think we'd have to go all the way to Lake of the Woods, but uh, yeah, I might. Uh, I might need a little coaching on how to how to roll that line, snap that line over to finish the the popper or something like that. But uh, yeah. I think we, we can do. We can we can do that. A little trade of. Little trade back and forth, little barter, it'll go well. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well uh we'll hopefully see you on the water then. I hope so. Or see you next weekend or the yeah, next weekend. Yep. Yeah. See you then for sure. Right on. Thanks again, Phil. Anytime. All right, guys, if you've been listening to this podcast for long, you know that iHunter has been a supporter of this podcast and us here at Panoramic Outdoors. You also know that iHunter is one of our favorite tools that we have in our pack, in our pocket actually, every time we hit the field. And uh, not only is it in our pocket, but it's literally everywhere we go with us because it's on our phone. And if you don't know what iHunter is, head over to iHunter.com or download the app on your phone. Um, iHunter is Canada's all-in-one hunting app, providing you with high-quality satellite imagery on your phone everywhere you go. Beyond that, they have instant messaging, so you can message your buddies, current weather forecasts, waypointing, tracking, public land maps, landowner maps, and everything you need in a mapping device. Throw the old GPS in the bin, and uh, everything you need is literally on your phone with this app interested in getting some public land maps for a discount head over to the website web.ihunterapp.com type in the promo code panoramic30 for 30% off your first public land purchase check them out now you won't regret it and that's a wrap for episode 116 of the panoramic podcast thanks again philip rowley for joining us on this and uh, thank you for the Manitoba Fly Fishing Association for um, helping us out on this one. If you want to see Phil in person in Manitoba here, he's put on a, um, a seminar with the Manitoba Fly Fishing Association March 25th and 26th, 2022 here coming up this weekend. If you're listening to this podcast when we release it, head over to the Manitoba Fly Fish Association, become a member, sign up, and you get to... Uh, spend two days with Phil and ask him all sorts of questions and learn a pile. And, uh, as we're approaching the last two weekends here in the, uh, 
fishing season in southern Manitoba, ice fishing season. Um, this weekend coming up, we're going to be donating $2 for every tub of minnow sold at Harvester Outdoors, heading over to the Children's Hospital. So they've, they've been doing this fundraiser all winter where uh, all their proceeds from their bait sales head over, uh, go to the Children's Hospital, and uh, we're going to team up for them with them for one weekend here and see if we can make a dent. So head over there, buy some bait, catch some fish. If you're looking for them, they're at 506 Mercy Avenue, and that's in Selkirk, Manitoba. So be sure to pop in. If you see Sean, say hi for us. The uh, the other thing I was going to ask Chase is uh, after that conversation with Phil, what's your favorite uh, chrominoid? I have no idea. I haven't even researched chrominoids yet. I'm, I, I feel embarrassed because um, I do enjoy fly fishing, but I... I uh I haven't even researched them yet and I need to I need to do some work so I can figure out how to catch some trout like next time when we're heading up to Thompson if I want to drop a fly in the water what kind of chrominoid should I be tossing you know what I mean Yeah the old entomology What are you going to be tossing Whatever's hatching There you go <laughs> That in mind, that's, folks. that's that's my answer too. So that's a good answer. <laughs> Match the hatch. Yeah, that's right. So and if we don't see you on the ice, hopefully we'll see you on the river. And remember, folks, to keep an edge on your knife. Match the hatch, and what else? There's gonna be one more. Stay topside on the ice here. Two ice, two ice ones. I like it. 